What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode one of the Longbox Bandits podcast. I'm your host, Rudy Vela, and today we will be talking to an Eisner Award-winning artist known for the work on titles such as Seven Soldiers, Mr. Miracle, JSA All-Stars, and The Bequest, as well as some epic crossovers like Batman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, He-Man Thundercats, and at the moment, Godzilla versus Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. That is a lot of titles and a lot of words that when i was a kid never yeah never thought would go together but here we are so with all that uh the king of crossovers himself mr freddie williams how you doing man (laughs) yeah thank you so much for having me on i'm doing great uh that was an excellent introduction thank you um got you got me all hyped up uh so um yeah the the crossover stuff it just seems like it would be impossible that it happened and then even I sometimes go like, how did I get so lucky to get to draw all this stuff? Like, you know, to get to draw Batman, Ninja Turtles, He-Man, Thundercats, Godzilla, Power Rangers. I honestly never thought I'd see those crossovers, much less to draw them. You know, so lucky. I'm so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all lucky as well because we get to see your talent displayed on the page and bring all these to life for us. Because, yeah, never in my wildest dreams would I be like, okay, yeah, Tommy Oliver will be there kicking it out with godzilla but here we are (laughs) (laughs) yeah kicking it with godzilla and being kicked by godzilla too oh yeah uh, uh, that that fight was pretty decisive i think (laughs) yeah (laughs) really fun to draw um yeah uh but yeah thanks for having me on and and thank you for your patience and and scheduling it this far out and stuff um we were hanging out together at uh was it grand rapids yeah grand rapids Rapids show yeah so uh and you you uh hosted hosted uh, or was the uh, i can't remember see. what the you, term is for for panelists oh moderated moderators you moderated yes <laughs> thank you you did an excellent job moderating the the panel the ninja turtle panel that i was on and stuff so thank yeah you. thank you for that and it's it's good just to hang out with you again yeah i mean all the pleasures on this end man i'm i'm, I'm happy to have you on and thank you for your time i know you're extremely busy and yeah that means that means the world to you know a west michigan nerd <laughs> You're in good company because I'm a Kansas and Missouri nerd. So, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Even and and I'm I'm like ancient, uh, I think, compared to you. So whenever I was going to high school uh, in Kansas, there was um, such a stigma about you know comic books and that type of stuff, role playing games and stuff. That whenever uh, the the few you know five or six friends that I had, when we would trade books or something, we would like bring them to school wrapped in brown paper sacks so that people, it, almost like you were trading pornography or something because you're Contraband. you don't want other people to know yeah exactly it's you want to keep it undercover and you're passing it off like don't let anyone see this you know? so um but then just recently i was at the thank you honey kiki just brought me a full cup of coffee so thank oh, you okay. <laughs> heck yeah but yes uh the 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 nerd level um back then it was not nearly as cool and then just recently i was at the graduation for one of my um one of our nieces and nephews and there was um they were playing in a, in a sports game i think it was volleyball or no it was basketball sorry and then they had like all of the seniors they came up to basically say like this is their last uh game of their high school career or whatever and whenever they were introducing them the the announcer um said it was like said their name, what they were most uh, going to miss about the school, what their field of study was going to be, and then their favorite superhero. That was like, 
And, and so like one of them said my favorite superhero was Ant-Man. Another one said The Flash. The Flash, everyone pretty much knew already. But when I heard Ant-Man, yeah, I felt totally, it felt so surreal that, that it was that mainstream mm-hmm. that if I can be so bold as to use this word, the jocks in quotes and air quotes, <laughs> the jocks were announcing Ant-Man as their favorite comic book or superhero character and who knows maybe they've never even read a comic book it was just it was kind of confusing <laughs> i just felt i was like i don't know how to feel it's so mainstream but i want i want it to be mainstream but it was um just very different from whenever i was a wee lad 100 years ago <laughs> well I, I was born in 1990 and growing up it was it was a lot of the same it was me and especially my grade i remember it was me and i flocked to like-minded people and so we mm-hmm. were always drawing, we we're always making random little comics and reading comics. And outside of that, yeah, it was the same thing. It was like people still judged you, still, oh, you're reading those those baby books. And it's like, shut up. <laughs> and then in high school, I was one of those quote unquote jocks. I played lacrosse in high school and I was the only person on my team that let that flag fly. Like I was oh, wow. completely content with being the the artsy kid who could knock somebody on their butt when I needed to. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I they're still... probably not going to mess with you too much. Because even now, you're you're a very broad, stocky, muscular looking guy. So they're probably they're going to be like, "Who is it? I heard was reading comics." And then they see you, and they're like, "Okay, it's cool." And then they just walk away. You know, um, I was just going to congratulate you. <laughs> That's all. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I totally. I, I never played. Uh, my my wife Kiki, um, she she was kind of a jock in high school, um, but she played like softball, volleyball. She played basketball. She was incredibly active in that stuff. So we awesome. knew each other in high school, but we didn't start dating until a couple of years after we both graduated. So, but she, you know, she was kind of a closet geek. It was like the opposite, you know, um, where she read Elf Quest and read Lord of the Rings okay. and was into Anne Rice vampire stuff and um before any of that stuff was cool by by any stretch you know both of us like in the first long conversation we had found out that we both loved elf quest which is wendy and richard penny from like it's basically came out in the 70s and 80s this mm-hmm. this elf quest series that's brilliant and it's beautifully drawn ahead of her time wendy penny the artist um and uh i just never met anybody else who was into that i was shocked and then kiki and i were like wait a minute, are we best friends now? Um, and then <laughs> uh, eventually started dating. I got lucky enough that she said yes to to marry me. So, that's, that's But we're still on awesome. ElfQuest. We've got like a, two dozen, you know, big artist edition books of their stuff, of Wendy's stuff. She's awesome. So I, I've actually, I've never fully read ElfQuest. I, I've seen it a lot. I remember when I was younger, I liked the, because of course, like you're a kid, you, you just like the covers. And I really sure. liked the covers and the art. I just, I never got into it because it was like, I needed superheroes back then. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and depending I'll, on I'll when, you, when you find it in your life. Yeah, it's excellent. Uh, it depends on where you find it in your life, kind of. So if you're into, you know, fantasy, but it's not just about fantasy. It's it's like family building and kind of has some 60 sensibilities. Um, and then later on, you find out not to be a spoiler or whatever, but there's you know the, the origin of the elves or these high elves that had like high technology and all this stuff it's pretty interesting stuff so it, okay. if, if you want to read the whole thing you're in for a long haul but it's that means that there's a wealth of stuff to read but um 
for me, what attracted me was was this the the artwork. It's so good. Um, and you know, she Wendy was the first, <clears throat> pardon me, the first artist I had seen that it was infusing sort of Japanese uh, manga and Disney. Uh, animation, the sort of large eyes and the expressions. She was like fusing that together with a Western sensibility, which now is, I mean, it's much more common now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, an artist like J. Scott Campbell and, um, you know, Joe um, Madureira, Madureira uh, those have, those amazing artists have popularized it and stuff for the last 20 plus years. But Wendy was doing it back before. I don't think anyone was doing it from my perception. She was like the first to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So her work was way ahead of its time and still looks contemporary for the most part, even now. So um, so that's why I'm glad you joined me for the Wendy Penny ElfQuest fan podcast uh, <laughs> today. <No. laughs> um, but I am just a huge fan of her work. So and that was, you know, something that brought Kiki and I together. So no, that, very I mean, that, geeky thing. But. That's awesome. I, I, I love when people actually get to discuss the things that they actually are like very in tune with and mm-hmm. uh, respect so much because who knows this might build the next big ElfQuest fan and make them want to you know get everything like that oh yeah 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 if you have a chance to go check it out anyone who's listening to this I would at least google search some of that um she doesn't the, the story has has concluded so she's not putting out a lot of new material with it but instead is, is putting out newer editions of older material, either artist edition type books or repackaging the old work and stuff. So you can still get them. They're not like out of print or anything. They're still relatively easy to find some okay. of those books. So yeah, cool stuff. So to start this conversation, I know we've kind of, we've dabbled into what I will call little Freddie, but I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to get back into those steps and I, I, want to discuss what would be like your origin story like what got you into comics not not even just uh your career path as being into comics but just overall what was that uh that book or that that cartoon what like what was the thing that pushed you into the direction of these types of fandoms let's see the earliest part of that would be i was so my my father was not around. I only met him like four or five times in my life. And that's significant because Superman ended up becoming like a father figure to me. It was like the Christopher Reeve version of Superman. And then the, um, sorry, not Justice League, the uh, Super Friends version of, you know, the cartoon Superman. Um, those were both surrogate fathers to me. And I had a bunch of old, um, uh, old uh, Superman comics that were given to me from one of my older cousins. And I can't remember who I got them from. Those books are long since been trampled in the in my closet and torn up <laughs> over the years and they they weren't in that great a shape even when they were given to me um <clears throat> but that and then like the sort of the the message of responsibility that was in like the he-man cartoons and stuff about because he was the most powerful man in the universe but he oftentimes would try to use you know charm or problem solving to get through his whatever the event whatever the obstacle was and then eventually he just is using his incredible strength he-man is um so those types of those types of that type of messaging really resonated with me about uh, it's kind of like what I think of what I'd want masculinity to be or at least for me or something is even if you are quite strong you're using you're trying to use diplomacy and uh, compassion and mm-hmm. problem solving to get through your issues so that's very much up Superman's alley as well uh, so those types of characters appealed to me. Um, and I don't remember a time before Superman you know he's from you know from 
for most intents and purposes, he's like a historical figure in my brain. You know, I've never met Abraham Lincoln either, but uh, <laughs> it's like the two of them <laughs> have been in my life an equal amount of time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, since before I was born. So um, in any case, that ultimately an actual book that brought me to, so I always had an interest in in comics and comic related things. Um, my, uh, and I would always draw, I had an aptitude for drawing very young and it's kind of a, a quiet activity that you're very safe if you're just sitting in your room drawing. So my mom kind of passively encouraged that. But um, it wasn't until I got ElfQuest book three, which is a collected edition um, from the Arrowhead library in Kansas. And then around that same time, so I just checked it out from there. And then around that same time, we had a garage sale where I sold a bunch of my old toys and then I bought, I went up to like the local um, convenience store called Stop and Go and it had X-Men 272, which is a uh, Jim Lee drew that. It's part of the Extinction Agenda uh, storyline. And it was like the first time I had picked up a comic and read it in a while or, or first time I had picked up a book and just it, it stopped me dead in my tracks because it was so well drawn mm -hmm. and it's like in 272 you turn like page one there's like <clears throat> some news sort of captions where you know there's like reporters talking to kind of bring you up to speed with exposition then you turn the page and it's a double page spread where all the a bunch of the x-men and x-factor x-force are all on trial in genosha they're on like these inhibitor cuffs and uh, the Genosian politics or politicians are reading off their crimes and stuff. And that that double page spread there drawn by Jim Lee, it just stopped me dead. I was like, whoa, it was so well drawn. Um, so, and then the Ninja Turtles reprints, uh, color reprints from the old Mirage stuff where they all the turtles had the red bandanas. Oh yeah. Those three books were the ones that, it's like, you know, they're very different looking at them. The, those are very different art styles, different types of stories. Um, but those hit me in relatively the same year, two years period, and made me feel so inspired that I wanted to try to draw comic books for a living, um, even though that seemed like an endless, far distant horizon that I could never reach, you know. Um, so now I'm I'm walking toward, I'm still walking towards that horizon. I'm, <laughs> I'm somewhere past my view from when I was a kid, but there's still a long horizon ahead of me on what I want to do in my artistic career and that sort of thing. I, I know that Jim Lee is a very, I mean, of course he's, he's legendary when it comes to comic art and everything like that. But yeah, I, th I think there are so many, especially people who want to be a comic illustrator. They thrive off seeing Jim Lee artwork in, in books from mm -hmm. like the nineties, especially the, the nineties X-Men and everything like that. I remember cause that was, that was like my, my goal i was like oh you know kid i want to be a comic artist and then i was stupid and <laughs> broke my hand and now my artwork is oh, down the drain <laughs> <laughs> when did you break your hand when did you break uh, your hand so i was i was dumb in my 20s and uh i was doing mma and i threw an uppercut and oh shit no more art for rudy <laughs> i'm all digital wow. now uh, I, I i like digital artwork <laughs> I, can, I can create the hell out of some logos but <laughs> sure yeah and and also i mean you know if you did give it a shot you know you could have like a simplified art style and if you worked in procreator um uh, clip studio or whatever some of those have some uh, jitter controls mm -hmm. that when you're drawing it could help smooth out some of your lines that uh, if you messed with it it would probably help out but it, i mean the, the reason i i i mean just out of the reason I was asking what happened with your hand, other than just conversation, of course, is because that is one of my biggest fears. Like I, 
I would almost rather be decapitated <laughs> than have my hand <laughs> be crushed in a press or, you know, messed up where I couldn't draw or something because it's, it's, uh, that's such a ingrained part of my identity. You oh, know? Yeah. It, it feels like it would be, um, so I'm, I'm sorry that you broke your hand. It's cool that you can still work in graphics and you're still making logos and, so it didn't like obliterate your abilities. But, yeah, um, I mean, no matter what, you gotta you gotta keep going. You gotta keep moving forward. I, I'm sure that was a very difficult thing to overcome, and that you're still dealing with it. So sorry to hear that. Nah, nah, it's it's all good. You know, everybody makes choices. You want to do something for hobby, and it it affects everything. <laughs> you never wow. you never think it will. But um, I, I was curious. Have you ever read the title from Image called Extremity? From no, Daniel Warren Johnson. So the, the whole premise of the story is these clans that are clashing and there's a, uh, I can't remember if they're actually considered like kings and princesses or anything, but there's the, the, the tribal ruler and his daughter who is supposed to take his place. Um, but she's like the most well-known artist in, you know, the world. Um, everybody thinks her artwork is beautiful and, the mm -hmm. first issue, the whole premise of it, uh, it shows it on the first issue's cover, is she loses her dominant hand to the other clan, and it kind of takes oh, away her humanity. And yeah. so when when I read that, I was like, I could relate. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, if that's, that's something that yeah. terrifies you, I mean, it, it's, of course, it's Daniel Warren Johnson. His artwork is incredible as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is a Maybe it's, it's a cathartic. Yeah, maybe it's cathartic to see that kind of thing um, where, you know, instead of it being too scary or too disturbing, maybe it's cathartic to see somebody move past the loss of their hand or something. I mean, it, in a way, it was like in watching the early seasons of Game of Thrones, whenever, um, oh, geez, the the Lannister who can, who's the Kingslayer, that can, I can't remember his name, Jamie, I think, um, gets his hand chopped off. Oh, okay. uh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched <laughs> Game of Thrones. But he's supposed to be a, an excellent swordsman. And there's all this buildup about how how much of an incredible swordsman he is. Um, and, but they're talking about it. You know, mm -hmm. he has this big reputation. And then whenever he's captured, um, somebody, uh, basically a, you know, a local warlord or whatever it is, whenever um, they get a hold of him. That's one of the first things they do is they just chop off his hand, his his sword, his dominant hand, his okay. sword fighting hand. And, um, you know, so you never get to see him fight in his prime. Maybe you do later on as a flashback or something, but it was, you know, he he's he's not a he's not a great character, a great guy anyway. But you can see him. There's some humanity instilled in him throughout uh, the series. So um, anyway, yeah. And, and part of it was, you know, seeing him. <laughs> <laughs> come to grips with that they just chopped it off unceremoniously it's just like in the middle of the conversation you know <laughs> see that would be the worst too it's like that you don't even make a moment of it <laughs> it's yeah. like uh to you it's it's your world but to them it's just it's just a limp. yeah just whatever yeah i mean it's definitely symbolic they know he's a swordsman but mm -hmm. he, he couldn't defend himself because he's all chained up and stuff so that's the worst Whew. <laughs> i hate it when that happens <laughs> well let's move past that so we don't give you nightmares yeah. about it <laughs> okay good yeah so uh I, I know you said that seeing you know uh jim lee's work and x-men and everything pushed you towards wanting to be a comic artist i'm curious before yeah. that i know you were into art and everything like that like as you mentioned prior to were you considering a different output of art were you considering like a uh, more, I, I'm 
completely blanking like traditional artwork rather than a comic book style oh like um like advertising or fine art or something yeah. like that um i i only ever wanted to draw comic book characters um but I, whether i was drawing it in a comic book form meaning panel to panel work with the narrative inside of a bound book um those things didn't really occur to me it was you know, just whenever I was a youngster, um, I was just drawing those characters on like typing paper, what we used to call typing paper. Now it's printer paper. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily trying to make panel to panel work. Whenever I, in high school, when I was 14, I met um, Tyrone Crockett, who is, uh, he was the a senior in high school when I was a freshman. He was definitely the best artist in the school for comic book type stuff. And he, um, that was around the time that I was seeing ElfQuest and the Ninja Turtle reprints and Jim Lee's um, X-Men 272. Uh, it was like within the same year or something. And Tyrone was just an, a very charismatic, uh, natural ch uh, teacher, very charming guy who was articulate so he could explain. So we started drawing together, basically. It's like I saw his artwork and was just blown away. My sister introduced, uh, my sister who was a senior as well, introduced me to him. And... I, it just felt like, oh my gosh, he's doing magic on the paper. He's he's taking a pencil and in front of my eyes, he's not looking at anything. Sometimes you do, but but at this case, wasn't looking at anything and was going from nothing to something and then refining the sketch, the scribbles until it became an amazing piece of artwork. Um, and I learned so much from him over the course of about three or four years. So I basically every morning before, before school started, I would go hang out in his physics class until the bell rang and then my my class was right down the hall um and we would draw together then we'd both skip lunch and just draw the whole lunch period and then we spent almost every weekend together just uh, all the time and we would sit at the same table and i was it was a combination of hanging out of course but it was also you know friendly critique back and forth and usually it was him helping me uh, but occasionally i'd notice something about his work and we were very little ego between the two of us so um this was a total breakthrough for me um he was if you ever saw the book called how to draw comics the marvel way that's how he learned to draw and so i ended up getting a copy myself mm -hmm. and this the principles that he uses the type of shapes and and proportional measurements where you measure the body according to how many heads tall and like how many uh, how long the arm is by how many heads uh, proportionately how long how long the arms and legs are and stuff um but seeing it actually in front of you or in front of me was oh my gosh anyway it's like <laughs> it blew my mind um and so even after he went to college we remained friends for quite a long time we're still friends now but he does not draw for a living he's um teaches like technology and um uh, like team building and from i don't know i don't fully understand what he does but he goes to corporations that pay him a lot for him to basically go in and teach them how to use teams more effectively and like um in any case, because he's just such a smart guy, uh, but he unfortunately doesn't draw anymore. But there was a couple of years there where he was still keeping up with that. And so we would make Xeroxes of all of our work and, you know, mail them back and forth. Um, so anyway, um, that was when it kind of kicked into high gear as far as I can see a roadmap ahead of me. I knew before I wanted to draw. I love to draw comic books. Now I know I actually need to, like, there's a, there's a formula, there's a mechanics behind understanding why it looks right or wrong you know and now i need to un you know i need to unravel that riddle and there's a million riddles and there's also like 
false riddles because it's all based on your preference and stuff. So anyway, um, that's what I wanted to draw comic book characters. And then meeting Tyrone was how I learned that I could draw actual comic books. And then that was around the time, have you ever seen the Levi's 501 commercial with Rob Liefeld where he's, uh, he's, yeah, dude, you're too young. See, that's the problem. Is that you're too young? No, I... <laughs> does that sound familiar? It, it vaguely does. I think maybe I saw it, it when I was watching a documentary. Yeah, probably. And, and they had it in there. So I, I, I probably, I hate to say it, I probably didn't see it live. Yeah, because you, you said you were born in 1990, I was right? born in 1990. You were born. So it, it came out when you were one year old. Okay. Uh, it came so. out in 1991. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but it showed for me at the time, because I was 900 years old by that point. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was 14 around then. And so uh, there were like new televisions in each, almost every classroom, and they would turn them on during the lunch break. And so on the commercial break, you'd see advertisements that seemed very, it was totally mainstream. It's Rob Liefeld. He's a comic book artist. He's contemporary. He was drawing X-Force at the time. He's advertising Levi's jeans and Spike Lee who's directing it is validating it because they seem to be friends in the commercial and I guess they were um that's you know it, it felt like wow everything's clicking into place you know I I comic books seem like this hidden nerdy thing but now it's getting some mainstream interest and success and then also image comics you know came out um around that same time so it was just it's like all signs pointed to maybe this is possible Mm -hmm. uh and now let's pour all of my attention and potential into it and hope that it works out yeah that see that's crazy i my generation kind of grew up with the same thing where um i'm sure back then it was still a lot of parents telling kids like stop wasting your time on that stop writing totally. those comics yeah. stop drawing those comics. definitely yeah and yeah. like my stop generation <laughs> yeah my generation grew up with the whole stop wasting your time on video games stop wasting your time on tech and now it's like playing video games is a professional career that a lot of people have yeah. designing video games yeah. is even bigger, better, uh, bigger one. There we go. Bigger and better. Yeah. yeah. And then just tech in general, you need to know the ins and outs of everything to, yeah. you know, run a, a good job. So it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that'll be a constant in humanity is the idea of what you don't, understand and what you don't see the point in will always be a, a waste of time to people i i, I don't think mm -hmm. we as a species will ever outgrow that which is unfortunate but you know <laughs> then that gives people a reason to be like i told you so yeah definitely I, and i think i might have even heard something about using biometric data there was going to be large corporations that would incentivize people for i guess it would be wearing some sort of it, it would be like granting the corporation great permission to see everything you did on your phone and then also somehow provide them access, I guess, to your body mechanics. And I don't know how you do that unless you put like sensors like on your body. Um, I, I got one and on somehow, right now, my Apple There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this would be like something more technically intrusive, depending mm -hmm. on what your terminology, it'd be more complete, a more comp complete monitoring of what you do as a human. And somehow maybe that'll become the next thing where it's like the more of every moment you somehow are able to share with a information gathering techno corporation will somehow be monetized or something that might be it where it's like, dude, I share everything where it's, that's, <laughs> that's the new thing. I can't believe you're not sharing every microsecond of your life, you know?
Yeah, for sure. Privacy is dead for old people. <laughs> tech is, tech is terrifying. Old people. When, whenever I, I like deep dive thoughts into it, I'm just like, yep, nope, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so jumping back, you, you said that you always knew that you wanted to do some type of storytelling with your artwork and everything. When mm-hmm. was it like what? I actually, it's really hard to find of course, like the first published work, like somebody's first published work, somebody's first uh, deal with Marvel or DC. That's always the easy stuff to find. But what was yeah. the first paid gig that you got on a book? Was it something obscure? Was it a big two thing that you uh, just, you know, you were one of the, the kids who were sending in your portfolio to editors and they were like, this is the one. Or did you have <laughs> a independent ish type book beforehand? The first time I ever received a paid page rate was on something that never saw print, so it wouldn't be possible to find. It was going to be, so back when, um, so I got paid for the gig, but then the guy who was doing it ended up having a lot of financial troubles afterwards and couldn't find a publisher or couldn't sustain what he was, what his plan was and stuff. And that was, um, so there's a popular inker and writer so he does both named uh, jimmy palmiotti who he he's uh, his wife or he's married to amanda connor and they're a very popular couple who do a lot of comic books and stuff mm-hmm. uh, jimmy and, and joe quesada were a, a joint team for probably 15 years or something like that where jimmy was always the anchor for joe um well jimmy has a brother named peter palmiotti and peter was attempting to get um so a small press thing together he was going to do like a series of anthology stories or short stories or something like that and so that was actually my first paid gig was with his anthology um that artwork no one can find it i'm still in contact with with peter and he doesn't have the artwork i don't have the artwork the anchor doesn't so we don't know what happened with that unfortunately i have some xeroxes but they weren't great back then um then let me see jumping ahead i think the next maybe was um so there's there's a company that makes really good art board, Bristol board named Eon Productions, E-O-N Productions, mm-hmm. ran by Brett Thompson. He's a he's a friend of mine f- for 20 years. Um, back before he, he was doing a, f- a few things in the comic book field. He was wanting to create good paper, which he is very successful at now. He provides, I believe, DC Comics with their new paper. Um, and uh, the other thing he was trying to get into was to create his own property um, and at the time it was called, uh, Cameron and it ended up being called project Eon later on. And he, he paid me, I think for most of that first book. Um, then after that, we agreed where I would get like a cut of the back end instead of a page rate. Cause it was, it ended up being like a hundred page book or something. And, um, so that was, and that is a book that saw print eventually. I think it was in 2006, maybe 2005 called project Eon. Um, so that's the first work that got published that I got paid for. In between those two, there was a company called Sundragon Comics <clears throat> that I did not get paid for that work, but I did three 28-page issues, something like that. Okay. And it was the book was called Vendetta. So not V for Vendetta, but just called Vendetta. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a Nightwing type of character who was hunting mobsters because they killed his parents or you know something like that. It was a long time ago. And... Um, but that it didn't see print for a very long time because they also struggled with getting the, the financing to, to publish that stuff. So mm-hmm. if, I mean that, and the thing is, is, if you have one of those books, 
or find them. They're really rare because there was a small print run anyway. And then after they came out, where they were being stored got flooded. So oh. a t- most of them got destroyed, basically. They had to be scrapped. So, you know, I have like maybe 10 cop, 10 sets or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you happen to end up finding one of those that, I mean, I'm not saying the artwork is great, of course. <laughs> it's <laughs> I'm saying that there might be a reason to hold on to it if you ever get it because they're incredibly rare. So, mm-hmm. um, and then the first work that I probably, I don't know, that I feel represents something that resembles my artwork so in the modern era or something would be a book called War God, which was, it came out through Speakeasy Comics. And that was a book that uh, I did I actually didn't get paid for that one either. Um, <clears throat> but it was, uh, you know, it, it felt like I was working with a writer who had worked at Image Comics. There were people who were actually paying attention to the book. Mm-hmm. It helped get my, get me a job at DC Comics. So it was kind of a, a you know, foundational type of work and stuff. So um, just a bunch of stuff in that time. This is, that's the thing with, with me and with many other artists that are trying to break in, you're trying everything to break in. You don't know exactly where the door is. You don't know how to, how to open the door. The door might seal itself. The door is disguised. Um, sometimes you can climb over the wall to get in instead of going through a door, you can tunnel under it. There's so many, there's, you just know there's an obstacle <clears throat> and you're trying to gain access to get published by one of the big two or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you know, there was a time where if you put out an independent comic that DC and Marvel were paying a lot of, of attention to indie work. So that would be a way to basically have a portfolio piece floating around out with the publishers. Like if you got an independent work published by Speakeasy or whoever, <clears throat> image, uh, maybe image comics, uh, that DC and Marvel are paying attention to that. So you might just get a call from them one day. So your goal is to either get in front of DC or Marvel or to get a calling card out there circulating by getting a book published. Uh, so you're jumping into every small press thing you can and everybody's like, this is our plan. Oh, our funding fell through or um, everything went belly up. Uh, this guy embezzled the money and took off with it. It's like everything starts and then you've done a bunch of work. And by the time you're done, that that person no longer even responds to their emails because they're you know they're not interested in it anymore just whatever okay. there were so many false starts and and leads that didn't go anywhere mm-hmm. and that was all for me in the years like 2001 2 and 3 you know like that was where i was hustling that type of work as much as i could where you just tried anything to get you know you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a dc <laughs> editor or whatever um and so eventually what worked for me, though, was just going in the front door. I don't think this front door exists anymore, but I, I had a portfolio at the San Diego Comic-Con. I, I Xeroxed my portfolio, dropped it off at the DC booth. Um, they chose me to be have my portfolio reviewed for the next day, and I got a pretty favorable review. And within a couple of months, I was working for DC Comics, and it's been really steady ever since. Now, I didn't know that was going to work, or else I wouldn't have you know, spent every molecule of time I had on all these false leads, but it's just, you know, you're trying everything to get your work out there. Um, and eventually I just got a portfolio review with the right people. And and that's how I got in. Those, those missteps are those other things that may not have panned out. That definitely could have been the reason why you were just like, okay, I'm just going to go straight in for it. Because there, there, there are a lot of people I, I know the, the crazy thing about it too. It's like, I know a lot of artists especially artists they're the ones who 
are very humble about their work and it's like wow this is incredible that's all right or like i've seen so many people who will have an amazing piece like especially i like watching people do live art on uh instagram just like sketching Mm -hmm. and doing their thing and i cannot remember the guy's name right now but he was drawing an amazing piece of omega red and there was a couple like there was just like a little area of him that he didn't like and he was like all right and he crumbled it and started over and i was like what are you doing (laughs) you're like no yeah and i'm just like what (laughs) and he's like yeah i I could i could that just kept standing out to me i could not stand that and i'm just like man there are so many people who are like that but there are certain things in your life that make you okay i'm just gonna go for it i'm gonna take that jump i'm gonna take that leap so actually just to interject what what pushed me to make that jump was more like Kiki pulling me. So Kiki, my wife, who I now work with every day, she's my best friend. She's my business partner. She helps me with the artwork. We spend all of our time together. Um, She's awesome to be around. Um, Back whenever we were much earlier in our relationship, I was complaining to her because I was trying to do, at one point in time, I was trying mail-in submissions where you Xerox your, your you know, photocopy your, uh, your portfolio, and then you include a self-addressed stamped envelope. You write a little brief cover letter that says, please accept this. I want to be a penciler. And then you send it to them, and then you hope that they'll send you back a rejection letter. You know, that's like basically your best hope is that they'll use your self-addressed stamped envelope to send you back something that says, you're not good enough, kid. Just work on X, Y, and Z and then maybe submit it again in six months. Like that's the kind of thing that I was into. And I was saying that it just felt so hopeless because I was either not getting responses or they'd be very vague or just a form letter. And Kiki goes, well, where, what do you think, where do you think people go to get jobs? Like, what do you think needs to happen? And I said, go into one of the two, the bigger shows like a San Diego con or a New York con. And she goes, well, why don't we just do that? And I was like, "Uh, you could just do that. And she was like, yeah, I mean, it like hadn't occurred to me to just try that and so she was like yeah we'll just put it on a credit card if it doesn't work out you know we'll pay it off and it's a relatively basically it's like we're not gonna it doesn't hurt to try you might as well give it a shot now that was 2004 that was not the year that it panned out I did receive a portfolio review from Marvel and they told me some stuff to work on that was 2004 but it was encouraging enough I felt like, well, maybe we can try it again. So we went back in 2005 and that's when it, that's when I got the portfolio review at DC and it, and it worked out. I got uh, my first couple jobs right after that. It's been really steady ever since. So um, for me, it was like Kiki oftentimes is like that. I'll have a, a, I'll have a clear idea of what I think all the obstacles are ahead of me on something. And sometimes it'll just be too daunting. And then Kiki's really good at being a, a more of like a, well, let's see what we can do to solve this instead of being hung up on those obstacles. And so, or just a fresh pair of eyes. And, and she's very sort of enthusiastic about, you know, whatever that we're working with. So um, oftentimes, you know, we talk all the time anyway, but oftentimes if I'm working on a problem, she'll just have a really fresh perspective and it'll, it'll crack it open for me again. So that's what it was for, for breaking into the industry. Well, shout out to Kiki. I mean, that's the Heck power yeah. of a... Um, a supportive partner. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. awesome. And I mean, who who needs Marvel? Who 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 at Marvel could the Turtles team up with? <laughs> so so we, I mean, we got we got the better deal out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the the Ninja Turtles would work really well. Just I know you were at, you know asking more rhetorically, but the Ninja Turtles would work really well with 
Daredevil. Like their history. Oh, I hate you. Is... That, that's the one thing I was Why like, well, that? because you're not supposed to call me out. <laughs> <laughs> I was just throwing out an example. I oh, didn't no, expect that's... you to have an answer. No, it's 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 perfect. No, I, I completely agree, especially considering they That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. The the whole mutagen with really? the, the the crossover with Daredevil and everything, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't yeah, the remember weird, the weird canister. Mm-hmm. And and so was just it... that the weird canister is the same thing. You know, yeah. it's like what hit Matt Murdock in his origin is basically Eastman and Laird were just like, you know, what if that canister missed the boy because they have like a slightly altered reality, you yeah. know, but they're linked. Or I guess you could even twist it and say, what if two canisters fell off? Or if the canister that hit him in the face. It, the cracked pieces that still had more of that ooze, the mm. mutagen, fell down the sewer grate and then got the turtles the rest of the way. So, I mean, Kevin Eastman especially has done plenty of interviews where they talk about all the places that they got inspirations from. He's very transparent about the, sort of the, the nature of creativity, which is you basically you absorb outside influences and you scramble them all up and then you <laughs> you put them back out with your own presentation and Oh, yeah. If depending on how close you are to the original, it seems, you know, creative and inspiring or sometimes if you're too close to it, people will call you out on it or they'll notice it too much or whatever. But that's how all creativity is. It's how every song is made and mm-hmm. every movie and is written and everything. It's <clears throat> scrambling up your influences and then serving them in a unique way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's the troubling thing with uh, especially with the Internet now. It's like every idea is consumed by everybody. So the complaints of like nothing's original anymore it's like nothing's been original for a long time <laughs> it's just more time, visible yeah, just, now. it is yeah it's more noticeable recognizable just mm-hmm. now but no i i completely agree and i i hope you go to marvel and you tell them you want to draw that because i would love to see that <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh and i i mean just recently kevin eastman and i did a, an electra short story that was um so we did an uh, for Electra, Black, White, and Blood, mm-hmm. um, number four. It was like a 10-page story we did in there and then a variant cover. So that's my first work with Marvel in quite a long time. And I got to work with Kevin Eastman, which is, um, he's an amazing person if you ever get a chance to meet him and hang out with him. He's genuinely really funny, really nice, um, very humble as well, uh, grateful for the fan base that the Ninja Turtles have have cultivated and stuff. It's a very positive vibe being around Ninja Turtle fans and being around Kevin. Um, so yeah, anytime I get a chance to work on something with him, it's like, uh, I just jump at it. It's everything else is like, you know, gets pushed to the back burner so I could work, <laughs> work with whatever <laughs> Kevin has in mind. <laughs> so I, uh, we, you know, we started talking a little bit about crossovers, be it a joke and everything like that and turning into uh, the conversation of those. Um, and I would be a fool to not even take a little bit of time to talk about that. I know I I told you before I wanted to focus in on on your upcoming into comics and where you got your start with uh, more or less DC, but your career mm-hmm. uh, overall. Yeah. And of course, that's branched out to other companies like Boom Studios, IDW, Aftershock. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like we've crossed that, but you're called the king of crossovers for a reason. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, the first thing I want to ask is like, how how did that come about? How like <laughs> where, where where did that style of storytelling fall into your lap and only your lap? It feels like these days, which is not a bad <laughs> thing. It's it's a great thing. I think every crossover you've done has stood out and been amazing, especially the artwork. 
Um, you create these characters Thank and you. you make them your own, which I think would be difficult because everybody's so used to, you know, Batman in one way, Turtles another way, He-Man yeah, in one yeah. way, Thundercats in another way, but you make them all look uniform. And I, I think that's incredible. Good. So, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, the, the way that, I mean, that's like, um, I mean, they're, those are pretty linked as far as the, the stories, those stories. So how it, how it got started from my perspective was <clears throat> I was working, I had done some covers for the Ninja Turtles, uh, IDW Ninja Turtles series. And I was talking to the editor there at the time about wanting to do more. I was like, let me draw as much Ninja Turtles as you can. You know, I wanted to draw more Ninja Turtles. This was in 2014. Um, so I was I was with DC Comics under an exclusive for like six years. And then whenever I got out of that exclusive, that's whenever I started branching out. Um, and so that's how the, the Ninja Turtle cover started coming up. And I was doing all st stuff for Dark Horse and I don't know everyone. Um, <clears throat> but the way that happened was um, I, I asked if there was more Ninja Turtle art I could do. The editor at the time at IDW said, we're pretty good on covers for a while because everyone wants to do Ninja Turtle covers. Um, but possibly there's a, a possible crossover that might be coming up where we're talking to DC Comics about maybe doing something with the Ninja Turtles. They didn't say what, they didn't say crossed over with Batman. They just said crossing over with DC. Um, and he, I remember the editor at the time said, uh, you would be a really natural choice for that because you've done so much work for DC and stuff. And but that was in 2000, maybe it was 13, but I just, there was like a, almost two years that passed after that conversation <clears throat> where I thought, you know, I haven't heard anything about this crossover. So it's probably just never going to happen because it probably would have fallen apart by this point because that stuff, you know, you're talking about like very large corporations who protect their intellectual properties and then talking about crossing them over. Who knows if we can even get through the logistics legally of how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of stuff falls apart all the time. That's what I thought happened here. But then I saw a tweet from my editor at the time uh, about a Star Trek Green Lantern crossover that was going to happen. And that's DC and IDW. And once I saw that tweet, I thought, oh, if, if they've made this arrangement, they probably are close to finalizing the paperwork or they've figured out a roadmap of how they're going to do these crossovers. So maybe that Ninja Turtle thing maybe it's going to come up. So I, I emailed Jim Chadwick, my editor at DC and said, Hey, I saw this, this tweet about Green Lantern Star Trek. And I would, you know, if you happen to want to cross over Batman and the turtles, which was just me, you know, it just seemed like it made sense. Um, I'd love to be the artist for that. And then I, I linked, I had been working with Jim off and on for a couple of years anyway, but I linked um, some work I'd done for those Ninja Turtle covers a Conan short story I had drawn and ink wash, which is the current style I work in. But at the time I hadn't done a lot of work in that style. Um, and then some Batman stuff that I had drawn that Jim had already seen. And uh, Jim Chadwick wrote me back and said, you know, in the, here in the office at DC, we, we were joking that you must be psychic because we were talking about who would be the artist for this crossover of Batman Ninja Turtles crossover when I sent the email. So they were in the middle of talking about it that day. He then received an email about from me and he was like, perfect choice. You know, he, he felt like I was a, perf a natural choice with it. Plus, we'd already worked together. We had a good work working relationship. So I've never had timing that good ever, except for maybe asking Kiki to marry me. You know, uh, <laughs> that's like the, the only other time I've been that lucky in my whole life. So um, that leading, you know, so that Batman Ninja Turtles was something that I approached him about in maybe, it was like, early, you know, early to mid 
2015. And I had a few more months before that actually start. So they had like an approved outline, but they hadn't moved, like they didn't have any scripts written by James Tynion or anything yet. Um, so I had a few months before I'd actually start. And so I kept thinking like, there's no way this is, a, it's too cool. It's going to fall apart. That's what I kept thinking. They're, they're just going to find a different artist. They're going to go with Jim Lee. He's going to draw it and it's going to look awesome. Uh, there's no way they're going to let me draw this. And But in those couple of months, um, I had enough time to start figuring out how I was going to draw the turtles. I grew up with the turtles, but they have a lot of different iterations. I grew up with Batman. I've drawn them a few times for DC, um, but I wanted to make like a definitive version that would work, yeah. you know, work be my version of Batman or my version of the turtles. So it gave me time to do what I call pencil studies. And now I try to do this as long as there's enough lead time for a project, I try to do pencil studies for every project that I'm involved with because it lets me get used to and explore the shapes that work for those characters or my versions of those characters. So what that usually means is looking at a bunch of other versions, you know, looking for influences, like what works really well about this the way that Matteo Santaluco, who's an amazing artist, who was at the time the artist on the Ninja Turtles series, he was the main artist, um, but also Kevin Eastman and Jim Lawson and John Samariva, uh, Chris Johnson, all these Ninja Turtle artists that do amazing work. But what can I, what is it about these that appeal to me or, or that I don't really feel that attracted to and I can try to eliminate that or whatever? Um, so anyway, those pencil studies, I did like maybe a dozen of them or something on that first project, were very useful to me um, to explore the characters. I also showed them to all the editorial staff to make sure they were cool with this iteration, the costuming details, because I slightly altered some stuff about, um, you know, like Leonardo's belt and his straps and Donatello and all this stuff. I gave Donatello the gap in his teeth, which was not me inventing that. It was just what it was usually in the animated series mm -hmm. um, instead of in the comic book. And so um, changed the shapes of the, I gave each of the four turtles a unique head shape to, you know, make it more easy to understand who they are at first glance um, instead of them looking identical with just different colored bandanas. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, that's the way that first project worked. And then I started applying that to each of the subsequent ones. I didn't know I was establishing a working model, but it just made sense at the time. Um, and I would refer back to those pencil studies like a, as like a style guide for myself to make sure I'm hitting those same shapes throughout the series so that the characters don't drift as much off model. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the in quotes old days, when I first started working for DC, it was like, you know, we need 200,000 pages yesterday. So we need you to work all night, every night and get us the pages as fast as you can. They have to be somewhat well-drawn, but just fast. You know, that was more of the mentality. And the disadvantage of that in the long run is you have, so the advantage is I, I was able to provide that. You get a bunch of pages done. So you get a lot of your page rate, you know, like, so you, you're getting paid more because you're doing it fast. You're pleasing your editors because they are getting the books out on time. I was making a name for myself very early. I'm talking about 2005 and six, getting this work done quickly. Now the disadvantage is eventually those editors leave the office and now the new editors come in and they don't know that you did this stuff in 10 minutes. They don't know you drew 200 pages in 10 minutes and they look at the work and they're just like, ah, it's just all right. You know, let's, let's find a guy or an artist who is really, really into these characters who doesn't look rushed. 
so they don't know under the on what conditions you drew these pages. So um, the long-term disadvantages of working really fast are that newer editors just might think you're not a very good artist. Because um, it's not like they're looking at a book that has, you know, an, an annotation that says Freddie drew this page in less than a day, you know, or something. <laughs> anyway, but with Batman Ninja Turtles from there on out, I've asked for more time. The editors can see that I'm not just hacking out pages and being lazy. They can see there's a lot of work in the pages and they seem to be cooperating and, and okay with it. So they build the schedule to be lo a little longer. Mm -hmm. And these are contained story arcs. So it's not like, it's not like they're looking for me to draw 12 issues in a year. They're like, you know, there's six issues. We can give you like seven or maybe eight months, something like that. Definitely. So <clears throat> that it totally revolutionized how my career is going and what type of properties I get to work on. Um, that Batman Ninja Turtles, that email I sent to Jim Chadwick is like responsible, the timing, somehow having perfect timing that day is, you know, so lucky for me. And then that led to a very successful Batman Ninja Turtles. I just so happened that the fan base of Ninja Turtles and Batman seemed to really like the way I drew them. And that led to He-Man Thundercats, which, you know, it seemed to go very well as, you know, so just a a series of crossovers where my sensibilities worked with what most of the fan base liked. Mm. Very lucky for me and has led to this groove that I'm in and I uh, hope to stay in it for a while. So we'll Definitely. see. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's, it's, it's awesome for us to like enjoy these books, these titles and everything like that. But I can only imagine the joy for you being a product of the eighties working on all these 80s franchises and bringing them to these new types of stories that are you know untouched ground which is mm -hmm. god that that has to just be self-pleasing <laughs> yeah in, in october last year whenever i was approached about the godzilla power rangers i was like they had to have already crossed over that crossover makes so much sense mm -hmm. that they and so i started looking it up and it was like other than fan made youtube videos or you know people discussing how the power levels of the characters or something um there was no official crossover that ever existed and i was like i'm i'm really fortunate that i get to bring i don't know <laughs> that i'm able to draw that it, it's like i i'm I'm so lucky to be a part of that, the the history of it, the lineage of this, uh, you know, people, you know, long after I'm dead, people will be like, remember that time that, the, that Godzilla fought the the dragon sword, you know, like they'll, they'll remember that kind of stuff. And um, it's, I'm just happy to be a part of that stuff. I'm, my goal is whenever I'm drawing it, I'm trying, I'm reconnecting to like a younger version of myself that these properties meant everything. You know, I when I would come home from school, whenever I was in second and third grade, He-Man and the Thundercats, those were the two, those were my world. And then when I got a little older, the Tim Burton Batman film came out. And then the year, the following year was the Ninja Turtles live action film. You know, those were, those were my world whenever I was 12 and whatever, you know, you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. they just, it's like getting to revisit that part of my life um and reconnect with that it's it's very it's like kind of therapeutic in some ways you know it's also i mean it's a lot of hours to spend drawing so your, your brain is just connecting with whatever it's just exploring so it's kind of mm -hmm. it's therapeutic in that way too your brain just goes all over the place is it true that your work for the power i mean of course you're already the go-to crossover um artist but is it true that your work for the godzilla power rangers 
uh, title came from a commission piece? Is that why they contacted yeah. you? Yeah, it's so weird. Um, so I love Godzilla, and I have since I was, you know, a, a wee baby. Um, <laughs> and, and and Power Rangers came out whenever I was in high school, but I, I remember being very charmed by it, and it was mm. it was really cool. It was right whenever I was starting to edge or age out of that, that type of interest or something, but I, it was included for sure. Um, but I had not drawn, I don't think I'd ever drawn Godzilla, and I'd only drawn like maybe two... Um, power rangers related commissions you know mm -hmm. uh, but in 2019 i went to the uh, comic conway which is a convention in conway arkansas yeah and there was a guy there that i met uh, named david who i remember because this commission led to godzilla power rangers um he he basically he came over to my table and he said um i've got a commission idea but i just don't want it to take too long i think is what he said and i was like what do you mean and he goes well i've had a commission with this other artist and it's been like three years and i was like oh my god i never take three years to get a commission done um i now i've now occasionally take like six months so maybe later in my career i'll be like three years i'm so sorry you know but but at this time three years just seemed like an eternity um <laughs> and i said uh, no no it'll be like maybe two months and i'll have it done for you and he's like okay uh, you know i'll hold you to that it's like mm -hmm. no problem and his idea was to have lino and he-man versus godzilla which would be that's the commission okay. that would be really bad by the way for he-man and, and lino they, they would really have an uphill battle trying to <laughs> trying to <laughs> yeah. defend eternia from godzilla you know i know they have magic and stuff but let's you know are they going to be like ref reflecting his atomic breath with their swords anyway but um that was the commission so i i drew a shot of godzilla the first time i'd ever drawn him and then he-man and lino like they're rearing up to fight him and I, I enjoy drawing the piece. I got it done in a couple months. And then I posted that on my Instagram, uh, you know, a couple of times over the last few years. And Toho, who owns Godzilla, saw that commission. And they basically, they requested me as the artist. I don't know if they knew me as the Batman Ninja Trolls guy. They just liked the way I drew Godzilla the one time I ever drew him at that point. So that's awesome. Um, that's how, yeah. And so that's how they, that's why they got a hold of me. And so, um yeah, that was, I guess that was a good timing too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's what led to it. So you need to play the lottery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think this is using up all of my probability field. You know, this is like, this is exhausted. Whatever power I have for probability manipulation, <laughs> all those points have been spent, I think, with this stuff. So I, I think that's uh, there's good plenty of other times I don't get lucky. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. trade off. Um, so I, I know that everybody, I'm sure they always ask you like, what's your, what's your dream crossover, everything like that. And I've heard from a, a couple of, uh, you know, podcasts that your dream would be to have all the old school franchises clash together, which somebody please fund that. I would love to see that. <laughs> but um, I'd love that. And as long as I had, if I could spend like 10 years on it or something, cause yeah. I would want it to be big. Mm -hmm. and really thorough and well-written. I want someone else to write it. I couldn't do it. Uh, but I just want to spend a lot of time drawing it, have silver hawks in it and, you know, the, you know, have Thundercats and yeah. He-Man and uh, Transformers, G.I. Joe, all this stuff. It would just be so massive. So I want to have a lot of time <laughs> to get to draw it. So yes, please. There's some million or billionaire out there. Um, yeah, make that happen, dude. Uh, I'm totally happy to do <laughs> to draw that <laughs> the, the idea of the concept reminds me of uh uh i think it was back in the 80s they released a almost like a do not do drugs type of cartoon but it was a crossover mm -hmm. with all the care and we had that vhs 
And I remember always watching that just because it was so jarring to see all those characters together. Like, I can't even remember yeah. what was going on, let alone it being not doing drugs. But <laughs> it was just seeing yeah. everybody interact was so cool to me. When I was growing up, there was, you know, it wasn't as big of a crossover, but it had, uh, you know, Scooby-Doo was in the Bat or Batman was in the Scooby-Doo cartoon. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was the coolest. I was, I mean, and Adam West did the voice, yeah. you know, for, for Batman. Um, it, I don't know. I just thought that was the coolest. That's the earliest example of a crossover I can think of. Mm-hmm. And I was on board for it then. Maybe that's, <clears throat> that's the dragon I'm still chasing <laughs> every time I draw one of these crossovers is trying to revitalize that feeling of crossing over from, you know, Scooby-Doo meeting Batman. Uh, but yeah, the, the drug one or the anti-drug cartoon, I was, I was old enough to not watch it like, you know, for the, I wasn't the attend, intended audience, but I, I was aware of it. And I thought, I thought like, oh, how did they make that work? Like, cause all of them were drawn in their own animation yeah. styles and, you know, um, in a cool way, but it was just neat to see them all on, on screen together. Mm-hmm. So uh, without asking you what your favorite thing would be, I thought it'd be fun to throw some crossover pitches and see if you, one, think it would work and two, if you would even humor doing the art for it. So the first one I have is the Ninja Turtles crossing over with the motorcycle mice from Mars. <laughs> I don't know anything about the motorcycle oh, mice no. from Mars. So, oh, what yeah, about street I'm, sharks? If I threw that out at you. Yeah, street sharks. I would be down for that. Yeah. I remember that cartoon. I didn't, I wasn't like a huge, I wasn't deep into that uh, cartoon or anything. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember uh, street sharks. Yeah, I could, I could. In uh, the newest, or yeah, the newest issue of Godzilla Power Rangers, there's a shark character from the Power Rangers. He's one of their villains, and I'm like, you know, I haven't drawn many sharks. It's actually pretty fun to draw them as anthropomorphized <laughs> mutants or whatever. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So the motorcycle <laughs> mice from Mars, I just thought it would be awesome to have like a crossover with uh, Dimension X. But yeah, I mean, if you if you're not mm-hmm. familiar with the title, uh, I know them mostly from a old uh, SNES video game that me and my friends used to play all the time um mm. but yeah really cool looking guys if you ever get a chance to check them out uh so <laughs> next captain planet and the toxic avenger oh sure yeah i mean Toxie, the toxic avenger that kind of went in i mean it had its, its own cartoon that was more kid friendly and then it had like the more raunchy sort of trauma uh version of him the true version whatever mm-hmm. so <clears throat> if we could kind of have something in the middle of those where it's like captain planet and the goody goody the planeteers are meeting Toxie and he it's a little bit more uh, a little less kid friendly not like full-on uh trauma but it would be one of the things I'm enjoying about drawing Godzilla Power Rangers is that the power level of Godzilla and all of their villains are they're so much more deadly and they're so much more powerful than the typical kind of like all the villains and the Power Rangers kind of move like this where they're like <laughs> You know, because they're supposed to be, it's basically the actor doing this to just show anim- or, you know, life to the yeah. character and then they have, they have a voiceover artist. And I like the idea of like these really innocent Power Ranger teenagers that are used to everyone kind of playing by a certain set of rules. And then whenever they meet Godzilla, they're like, oh, how powerful is this guy? Like, it's like it's beyond their comprehension to see how powerful and deadly Godzilla is, you know. Um, that first so confrontation like, was... Oh, sorry. I was going to say that first confrontation with the Zord was amazing. I, I remember just like watching, and I, I won't specify which one it was or anything like that, but to see the intro and just getting that 
because I, I I did grow up with the, the Power Rangers and to have yeah. that nostalgic kick in, and I was like, oh, here mm-hmm. we go, and then just completely be <laughs> obliterated. Like, oh, okay, we're, we're not going. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, it's not um, morphing and, time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was morphing time. It's no longer morphing time. There's um in the second issue, um, there's a scene that I can't believe they let me draw, which is, um. I mean, I guess I'll have to spoil it a little bit, but like <laughs> Megaz- Megazord, you know, mm-hmm. he forms his or gets his sword. He calls upon his sword. And I think, I can't remember if it's the pink ranger, but she's like, oh no, I'm sorry. It's the, the blue ranger. I think says, um, it's all over, but the crying, meaning he thinks like now that yeah, we've got Billy. the sword. Yeah. There's, there's just no way that Godzilla or whoever this is stands a chance. And so, um, and I like that they're just used to that literally no other villain can stand up to whenever they have the, the power sword there's that cool animation where it's like flashing and stuff um in the or not animation special effects whatever it is um in the in the mighty Morphin power rangers season one specifically and then godzilla and megazord charge at each other and so i got to draw a double page spread of godzilla being impaled by the power sword but at the time at the same time he's doing he's like unleashing with an atomic blast mm-hmm. right point blank right at megazord and i i kept double checking with them like because it's pretty brutal as far as what a <laughs> comic book can show and i was like are, are you sure i can draw this because it's like it's critically injuring each other and it's the second issue you know are we okay drawing that mm-hmm. uh, are we with me drawing that and they're like yeah that's fine um yeah, that's what we want. So I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> anyway, the reason I'm bringing all that up is it's it's like, you know, literally the Megazord and, and Godzilla are much more on the equal footing and stuff. But for like a, a Toxic Avenger, you know, uh, Planeteers, um, Captain Planet, I could see them being so goody-goody and then having like such a, a sort of a shock, a culture shock, meeting a slightly weird, uh, more adult gross toxic yeah. you know nothing very that be frightening great. appearance guy <laughs> yeah no yeah. and I, I i love the concept of that especially because everybody who grew up with these characters are now adults and we can uh you know we're into that more adult theme i i love seeing things like mm-hmm. the 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 last ronin because it's introducing the concept of you can take these characters and put them in danger you could take these characters and put them in more adult themed scenarios and your fan base is there. You can also, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you can bring in the the younger kids who are kind of getting to that age and introduce them to that as well. But no matter what, your fan base grew up with that, so they'll want that kind of uh, yeah. interactions. Uh, and then, and it also, it's just also just a shocking story. With Last Ronin, it's really well, it's a really cool story. But it's also there were so many people who were messaging me going wait, all the turtles are dead or like only one of the turtles is alive mm-hmm. and Splinter's dead too. Like they're kind of like coming to me as their support group, like to find <laughs> out what the prop, you know, what happened? Um, because they assume that it's like a, you know, a continuity change that's going to be forever. And I'm like, nah, it's like a alternate reality yeah. or a, p- a potential future, a dark future or something. Some Elseworlds um, type of story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a well-written one too, a really cool story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the last one that I have, and this is more like fan service to myself, being a big fan of both of these characters, but uh, Hellboy and the Hellblazer himself, John Constantine. <laughs> Not really a versus, get along... but like a crossover. Just like yeah, a, they, BPRD, a team up. Yeah, BPRD yeah. needs his help 
to uh, deal with some Trigun-esque type stuff. Yeah. I guess you'd have to have them great on each other because it almost seems like they would be, because they're so, they have a very similar overlapping personality. So maybe that would be like two magnets equally charged and they're or equally polarized. So they're mm-hmm. pushing each other away. Um, so yeah, I think that would be, and I would love to draw some, uh, some Hellboy. I, I love Mike Mignola is one of my favorite artists and he's like the opposite end of the spectrum as far as level of detail and stuff, but his compositions and use of, of shadow and stuff is masterful. And yeah. I, um, study his work and have for years so i would love to draw some some hellboy stuff um yeah that would be i'd love that too yeah sign me up so once you get the (laughs) once you get the green light get back to me uh we'll start tomorrow i'll let you know i have no context (laughs) but i'll let you know (laughs) as you can see i have a a little shrine it's a big red back there (laughs) oh Um, yeah i I actually couldn't really tell what that was but now i can understand the image a little better yeah, yeah. It's, I got all the books and figures and stuff like that. Um, but no, yeah. I, I've seen your your pieces of Hellboy. Um, more recently, you just posted one on, on Instagram, and I was like, man, that, yeah, I like the visuals of that. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but like, I think there, there's a way to do a really detailed style with Hellboy because mm-hmm. all of Mike Mignola's, the, the Mignola verse, whether he's drawing the characters or not usually have a very Mignola feel so there's they've hired several artists who draw in a very similar style not to not to ghost him but to just make it compatible so sort of with his stark black and white and uh sort of blocky shapes and stuff so I I think there would be a way and I would like to show or to prove it um a way for me to do a much more uh detailed stylized render with you know ink wash uh version of Hellboy but it'd still be spooky and suspenseful and goofy all at the same time you know i'd love to do that yeah i i actually um along with your your uh piece of hellboy i after reading the the bequest from aftershock just seeing your your details Mm. in not only the the brooding characters uh like the monk the size of him and everything i was like okay put a trench coat and some horns (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there you go yeah but yeah uh, i can see that the monsters that you created i was like oh my god like i was like i need this dude to do a hellboy book or i would would love to see you and cullen bunn after godzilla power rangers to take on some justice league dark that would be incredible as well so yeah i'd love that there there are so many pieces from your uh different books that branch off into like man he could do this i would love to see his work on this this and but yeah it was it was cool so, to see your, your work on the bequest because just like the giant monsters and the well bigger monsters and the scope of everything it was just like yeah the yeah yeah because no none of them are as giant as godzilla so yeah. uh, so they're <laughs> yeah. not exactly giant but they are big mm-hmm. um yeah that was uh, so uh tim seeley and i worked on he was the writer for uh Injustice versus Masters of the Universe, which was one of the crossovers that I drew where it's like, uh, you know, from the Injustice universe, Batman recruits He-Man to defeat the evil Superman, basically is the the summary of the Injustice Masters of the Universe. Mm -hmm. And and Tim and I got along really well in that series. So there was supposed to be another crossover after that, He-Man Ninja Turtles. Yep. that um you yeah uh you had seen the sketchbook uh, and i think we talked about it at the show at the yeah. uh granite Con, a- after reading granite the, Con, yeah grand after, rapids sorry yeah grand rapids after reading the book yeah. i i noticed uh one of the first things it's it's a touchy subject so i was like i might steer clear of that a little bit today <laughs> because like i you haven't know, let re- go of it 
Yeah, reading reading it is is one thing. Which uh, again, uh, well, not again. I said this at the con, so I'm transporting myself months back. Um, yeah. But uh, as he said, he was working on a TMNT He Man crossover, but he does sell a book called He Man TMNT: The Crossover That Almost Was, and uh, we will be doing a giveaway for that signed by Freddie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so go ahead. I I just wanted to say like that's why I didn't really want to touch base because. I, I, I read it, and if anybody wants to know all the details, read it. But I, touchy subjects are touchy subjects, and I understand that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, um, you know, nobody is a villain in the story. And I, I try to make that really clear also in, in the sketchbook that I, that I talk about it. And I done a, a couple of times when I ever talked about it, it's just a, a series of things that sort of happened at the wrong time, and the book got canceled. But there was a, basically, there was about, I don't know, almost a year where I was supposed to be drawing He-Man and the Ninja Turtles. I did a bunch of concept sketches for it. Tim Seeley, I was trying to get to be the writer. So he and I talked about a bunch of different plot points. We never actually wrote anything uh, as far as like, we never wrote a full story. It was just like coming up with concepts of how we can mash these characters together. Mm -hmm. um, but so after that got canceled, after He-Man Ninja Turtles got canceled, uh, Tim Seeley and I were just like, well, let's work on something else. You know, let's just, you know, uh, Mike Martz, who was the creator and editor-in-chief of uh, Aftershock, He's uh, he's an editor I worked with at Marvel and DC in the past. I love Mike. He's an awesome guy. So we get along really well. And um, Tim also knew Mike. So we put together a creator-owned book called The Bequest. And it was kind of like, you know, D&D characters that from our old role-playing days uh, mixed together with sort of, the you know, bringing them into the modern world. So it's like, uh, you know, Epoch, who is the the main bad guy. To me, he's he's the most interesting character really you know, he, he's, he generates the story. He's the prime mover of the story. And his basic principle is that he was a cleric. Imagine a cleric from the D&D role-playing game. Mm -hmm. um, his deity abandoned him and his whole order basically died from a pox or a plague. And he vows vengeance against his deity. This is kind of like Zeus, you know. Um, so he finds a way to come to our modern world and is able to do some arms deals where he's trading magical trinkets and things for modern guns. And then he employs, a, you know, a, he recruits a bunch of the other races in the D&D world, like orcs. And uh, we never actually named the wolf, uh, but there was a, a wolf race in an old uh, D&D-like role-playing game called Palladium. There were these things called wolvens that are like okay. anthropomorphized. They're not werewolves, but they're kind of, they have some stuff in common. Um, but this cleric epoch, you know, he recruits a bunch of these other races who have also been basically frowned upon. They've been, you know, the deities aren't helping them either. So their plan is to kill the God, kill this deity. And that's such a powerful story that he, to me, all of the, all the main characters work against him, mm -hmm. but he still achieves his goal. Now things don't go well for him after that, but he's able to <laughs> to take out that deity. I, I think that's so powerful. I love that storyline. Mm -hmm. um, so that, anyway, yeah, that go story. Ahead. I was gonna say that story overall was just incredible. The the use of um, not really um, semi current politics and the, yeah, the style. <laughs> right. I, I remember when I when I first started reading the first issue, like pulled me in. I was like, okay, this is amazing. And then the second issue was so jarring, but in a in a great way where I was like, I did not see these guys coming in. <laughs> yeah, but, hopefully it hooks you. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. Yeah, Tim Tim's a great writer. He's a great collaborator. And 
uh, yeah, he he definitely works in politics to the story, but oftentimes it's not like a clear cut. Um, I mean, it's political, but it's I don't think it's like bashing of whatever perspective, you know, like I think anybody can enjoy it. It's just making comments that politics exist and that some people and will do bad things no matter what. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but that's that was the bequest, and then a few months after I finished the bequest was whenever the Godzilla Power Rangers thing came around. So, so basically, Tim and I worked on the bequest during the lockdown, you know, and, okay. and then a little after that, it was like whenever everything shut down, that was when they canceled He-Man Ninja Turtles, mm -hmm. and so we were just like, you know, basically everyone's shutting down. Let's just do our own thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we want to do? And then that's how it came about. So, um, very even a different art style. It's not an ink wash. Um, different inking approach that I did and then a different coloring approach that Jeremy Caldwell did as well so um I hope people like it I think you might be one of the five people who've read it uh <laughs> it didn't sell super, it's sold okay um but uh, I, I think it's it was a story just, I would just like more people to see awesome yeah no I I agree I think it was just something that wasn't pushed the best it could have been um, because I mean, mm -hmm. realistically, it, it checks off a lot of, a lot of boxes for people, especially with D and D blowing up the way it has recently. Um, yeah. and the, the characters are stand out. I mean, I, I listened to critical role and I feel like they, they match that point to where I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. I need, I need more of the war party. I would love to see more of the hijinks <laughs> and the way they, they were brought together. And I mean, it was, it was very well done. It was a really well done book, but yeah, I agree. I think, cool. I think more eyes deserve it. That's why I wanted to. <laughs> you know, bring it up a little bit because got to show some love for the bequest. Oh, um, well, thank you. Yeah. I would, I would love people to see it. Um, the, I mean, there's a trade paperback of it out now, so it's got the sketch work and stuff like that in it and everything. So it's a limited, it's something we could do a sequel to it later on, but right now it's pretty, a pretty self-contained story. So you don't have to track down the individual issues. You can just pick up the trade. Okay. Well, that, that works. Cause I was actually going to ask like, what is one of your storylines that you would recommend that you want more people to read, but boom, you answered it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If it's, a, if it's of my own work, uh, I think, yeah, the bequest, the other creator on the thing I did um, the same year that we did Batman Ninja Turtles. Uh, I worked with Mark Guggenheim, who I worked with on the JS on JSA a long time ago. And we did um, uh, he's since then he like has written uh, the Arrow TV show is one of the executive producers on that and Flash and stuff. Okay. Um, but we've been friends for a long time. There's a book that we did together called Jonas Quantum, and it's about a like a hyper genius. This came out in 2015, and it's also a, a self-contained story that you can pick up the trade of it. But um, in the first issue, he cures death. Um, <laughs> that's like his <laughs> opening move. <laughs> and um, uh, anyway, things point. spiral out from that. So it's it's not the it sounds really good in theory, but then later on things go wrong with it, of course. But um, <laughs> that was a really cool. But I think that those, because I love getting to draw Batman Ninja Turtles, King and Thundercats, all these cool crossovers. But the creator and stuff, it really does get eclipsed by a lot of those larger profile books, which I totally get. Um, but yeah, Jonas Quantum and The Bequest, if you ever have a chance to pick those up, those were very, you know, things that are offbeat. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the reasons that I enjoy drawing them so much because they, very different than the mainstream comics that I normally draw. Yeah, I, I agree. And that, that kind of is the, the sad thing about indie books. Um, people are so quick to give Batman, Superman, things at Marvel their attention. And then they're very hesitant when it comes to create our own projects. And I'm 
really hoping that, you know, I, 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 I think it has shifted more to where people are more accepting of that stuff, but there still is a large portion of readers that really go for the um, big two, unfortunately. So we're just about out of time, but before we go, if people wanted to find you and your amazing work online, where would they go? <laughs> I have a website. It is www.freddyart.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember a long time ago, it used to be, um, you'd actually have to spell out everything very carefully because people were like, so what is the web address or what is that again? But anyway, yeah, freddyart.com is my website that has, that has um, a bunch of my original artwork. It's got... I mean, you can look through a lot of that stuff. There's like hundreds of, of pieces of art posted on there and they're listed for sale, but you don't have to spend any money just to click through the JPEGs and, and take a look at them to see if it's stuff that you like. Um, but aside from that, I'm on Twitter as Freddie Art. I'm on Instagram as Freddie Art. Um, I'm on Facebook just as Freddie Williams. Uh, although my friends list might be maxed out, but you can still see stuff, I guess, if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> that's um, those are the easiest ways to find me is probably through Instagram and Twitter, which are Freddie Art, uh, spelled with an I-E. Freddie is spelled with an I-E. So, um, but I post at least two to three times a day um, just artwork that stuff that I've already drawn in the past from the previous crossovers or new commissions that I'm drawing now, new upcoming or covers for upcoming books and that sort of thing. So I'm pretty active on those. <laughs> that you are, man. So like he said. If you do want to check out uh, some of his art that is for sale or his past books and everything like that, check out freddyart.com. And if you'd like to join his social media, he is on Twitter and Instagram under freddyart. And with that, Freddie, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. This has been awesome, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's good to hang out with you again and um, yeah, just having a... Uh, a, a fun chit chat. I think we, cause we talked on the panel a bit and then we just hung out at my table for, for quite a while as well. So um, yeah, it's fun just to, just to chat with you again. It's been a few months. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, but yeah, I know time is uh, flying. It's ridiculous. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you take care, man. Thank you so much. again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Before I wrap this up, there are a couple things that I want to say, and you might want to stay for that because one of them involves a giveaway. First off, I want to give another shout out to our special guest, the incredible Freddie Williams II. Thank you again for taking some time out of your busy schedule to make this happen, man. You're amazing, and I really appreciate it. As for the giveaway, we'll be giving away some books signed by Freddie on Instagram, so make sure you're following our podcast network at Not Your Average Nerds for all the details. There will be a link in the description. The giveaway will be open to everyone on Instagram. But, considering you took the time to listen, I want to give you a leg up on those who didn't. So on top of following the rules of the giveaway once they're posted, if you message us on Instagram telling us the title of the comic both Freddie and his wife loved in high school, you will get an additional entry to the giveaway. I'll give you a hint. It was discussed in the first 15 minutes of the podcast. And that's going to do it for episode one of the Long Box Bandits podcast. Thank you all for listening. I hope you had a great time. If you did, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcast. That will help us out so much when it comes to all the algorithm business. Other than that, make sure you follow us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss out on any episodes when they go live. And until next time, remember to hit those long boxes.